Welcome to New Chip Accelerate, the podcast for entrepreneurs by the New Chip Accelerator. From investing to building a company culture, this podcast strives to shine a light on the many unknowns that entrepreneurs face on a daily basis. Through talks with key personalities, Accelerate will teach you how to approach your investors, companies, customers, and roles with a fresh perspective. We have a very special episode today to honor New Chip's online demo week which is airing from January 25th through 29th, highlighting 147 companies from the New Chip Accelerator and other key thought leaders through panel discussions and keynotes. Today's episode is the keynote that kicked off the entire week between New Chip Accelerator Director Armando Vera Carvajal and the EVP of Bain Innovation Exchange at Bain & Company, Sonali Domley. Let's get started with Sonali's keynote. Uh, my name is Armando Vera Carvajal, and I'm the Accelerator Director here at NewChip. I would love to introduce you to Sonali Domley, an international business leader at the Bain Innovation Exchange, which is part of Bain & Company, uh, one of the most prestigious consultancies in the world. Uh, she's here for a talk uh, around building and learning new business ventures in high-growth global organizations. Uh, Sonali, thank you so much for joining us today. It's such a pleasure to have you here at NewChip. Um, before we dive in, I'd love to share some details on your background to share a little bit of context with our global audience on, on who you are and how amazing your experiences are. Uh, Sonali is an international business leader with experience in building and leading new business ventures. Um, she likes to think of herself as a dreamer and a doer, which is very important. Uh, she has a very deep interest in understanding the unmet customer need and also developing the mechanism people, processes, marketing, and funding uh, to make a good idea a reality. Uh, Sonali's expertise lies in translating those ideas into scalable, highly resilient businesses that successfully navigate and operate in dynamic, fast-paced global economies. Uh, She's very passionate about building sustainable organizations by developing a depth of talent and inspiring leadership to lead both the financial and non-financial goals of dynamic, high-growth organizations. Uh, Currently, Sonali is Executive Vice President at the Bain Innovation Exchange, which has the mission to forge startup partnerships for corporate clients and effectively turbocharge their disruption and innovation journey. Now, the Bain Innovation Exchange connects startups, accelerators, uh, venture capitalists, and corporates to unleash game-changing ideas to build the future today. Uh, She considers herself a serial entre and intrapreneur, uh, this being her second business that she's helping build at Bain. Uh, Prior to this, uh, Sonali spearheaded the Global Centers of Expertise model, and she built the Bain Capability Network, or BCN. In this capacity as the head of BCN, uh, Sonali grew the business from an idea to a more than 500-person team. Uh, serving clients across industrial and functional areas, incubating new AI-based tools, and also accelerating the pace and cost to serve consulting client needs. Prior to earning her MBA in finance at Warden, uh, Sonali founded her first startup in New York, New York in the early 2000s, focused on geospatial mapping of survey and aerial photography data to inform construction at major infrastructure hubs such as ports. Uh, She has since been an advisory board member on various early stage ventures. And of course, outside of work, 
Uh, Sonali has a keen interest in sustainability and mentorship, which is so important in the entrepreneurial ecosystem. Uh, she enjoys exploring new places with her spouse and two kids. Uh, she's curious about history and cultures, art, music, food. Uh, and she's also fascinated by people with diverse worldviews. Uh, and she's always game to go on adventurous sports all the way from scuba to skydiving. Wow. <laughs> so Nelly, it's such a pleasure once again to have you here joining us at Online Demo Week. Um, welcome. Thank you. Uh, wow, I'm feeling very impressed at your ability to say all those good things about me. I am so happy to be here today. Thank you for inviting me. No, 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 absolutely. It's such a pleasure. Uh, look, to, to start this conversation, um, I, as I was mentioning when I was talking about your, your bio, you've been a leader for many years at Bain & Company, one of the most prestigious and influential consultancies in the world. You know, I'd love it if you could tell us a little bit about what the past 14 years, right, leading in this multinational firm has taught you about developing a highly competitive global business in today's fast changing world. Can you walk us through that journey? Uh, sure. So I, um, you know, my journey started about 14 years back. I had two very little kids who had very little influence into what I was going to do with my life at the time. We moved from New York, packed our bags, moved to India to head up, which was what was a very small um, you know, and, but a highly successful experiment in Bain called the Bain Capability Network. It was called the Bain Capability Center back then. It had about 50 people, 40 something. Uh, and the mandate was to really make it successful and scale it and make sure that we were hiring, hiring talent and producing the quality of work that is only expected off of a strategy consulting firm. Small feat, right? Uh, I thought I was going to go for a couple of years. I ended up staying for seven and we grew it to become a multinational organization that pivoted from being more of a cost center research oriented organization to, um, you know, serving and clients in what we call the global centers of expertise, uh, which is, you know, once strategy consulting is done, we, the client, our clients still need a lot of help uh, on a number of our products, not all of them, uh, to be able to serve uh, the needs on an everyday basis, the analytics required and the and the sort of research required. And so we would come in and we helped clients doing that. Did that for a long time. And then it was time again to move. And uh, we picked Houston, not so much uh, for any reason other than the fact that my husband is an oil and gas. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I am now working with the Bain Innovation Exchange and you introduced that. And so this is another one of those amazing uh, Bain ideas. Bain's no, Bain has always been known for being entrepreneurial and coming up with, uh, you know, new age ideas for disrupting the consulting world. Um, you know, we've done up the private equity business came, consulting came out of Bain and I can go on and on. Uh, but the Bain Innovation Exchange, as you rightly pointed out, is our way to say, okay, you know, corporates tend to go in, in a direction. There is the startup world that's disrupting at all times. How can we bring these two worldviews together that are often parallel and not crossing paths? Uh, and that's what I'm doing right now. And so you asked me the question of, you know, what does it take, right, to be uh, successful or to develop a highly successful competitive uh, global business, uh, a multinational firm? I'll add another multi or another couple of multis to your narrative. Uh, we function, I think we function today in a very multidimensional, you know, geographies, industries, talent kind of thing and multi-speed world, right? Uh, markets and cust uh, customers uh, and their sophistication and readiness vary so much across the world. 
Um, and so really acknowledging that that actually exists and the one size fits all doesn't really work is really important. Um, I'll take an example. So, um, you know, let's let's take talent and customer. It's a nice pair. I like to talk about it because I think of those as the two most important tenets of any business. Um, in a global business, you are essentially tapping the highly talented, educated, smart people from around the world. And it is amazing how globally homogenous the top of mind issues are, no matter where you go, right, for that talent pool. Things such as who are you going to be working for? What does the company stand for? What's the ethos? What will you be learning? How will you grow? Very common. Anywhere you go, you will see that. Also equally insightful is the fact that the cultural nuances, though, can bring such differences in how it manifests itself, right? So for, for example, in some countries, and in fact, even in some companies, uh, you'll see that work cultures can be very varied. Uh, you know, in some places you go, you put your head down, you... Um, you know, put, on, put in your X number of hours, you leave, and then you have a social life. In other places, you're there all day. You're, you're stretching, you're, you're at the pool table, you are, you know, having those water cooler chats, and your best friends are made at work. And that can create all kinds of uh, challenges when it comes to thinking about being competitive in a global setup. The talent question is a big one. Equally is the customer question, right? So um, in a multi-speed situation, customers are different. Customer needs are different. Um, and this, while customer is always at the core of things and you need to hone in on what problem you're trying to solve and to make sure that you're testing it regularly and evolving that over time. You know, in some geographies, the level of sophistication is different than others. And so in our world, for example, when we were growing the BCN, you know, some countries and some clients were looking for very basic research and we wanted to give them the whole whole whole, whole shebang, right? Nice. Uh, you need to recognize that and you need to recognize where you need to be and, you know, sort of uh, uh, neutralize these sort of creations of unnecessary anxieties or, or friction points, if you may. So if I were to sum it up into like one lesson, if you may, you know, I would say to be successful, you have to really hone in on this idea of customer and talent, like it's a two in a box. You can't just go and say, I'm going to go think about the customer. I'm going to think about growing this business. You have to think equally, if not uh, more of sort of how are you going to serve that business and hone in and focus on the cultural nuances, knowing fully that in harnessing similarities and different differences, you can actually function in this multi-speed and multi-dimensional world in very successful ways. And certainly for us, that was the case. You know, we would go in, we would have a lot of systems that were, very um, globally sound, but very quickly we would have to morph them into what was locally uh, relevant for that particular customer and for that particular talent pool. That yeah, and that's that's so true. It rings true in so many levels, not just from the corporate world, but also working with startups. When you talk about the talent and the customer angles, they're fundamental to really driving the growth and the scale, especially when you, when you're across geographies. And it's fascinating, as you were mentioning, you you can have a certain corporation that has a very sort of well-known or reputable culture, but you go inside the corporation and you cross into a different department. It's like a very different culture, right? I think those are some of the challenges that have to be regarded. Um, kind of going off the similar vein, you know, it, it's, it's often said in the corporate realm and especially the world of strategy consulting that these two fields are very myopic on some levels. Um, Yet we know that there is a lot of innovation across industries. You're at a very, very unique place, right? Where you have 
one foot in the big corporate world and one foot helping drive innovations at startups. How can big established corporations around the world better position themselves for accelerated growth on those front lines of innovation with new startups that are perhaps not even on the radar yet? No, you raise a really interesting question. And clearly, you know, this is an, a question that has grappled many. I mean, it is about having a multi-pronged approach, as I call it. Uh, we often talk about not putting all your eggs in one basket or rather avoiding that, right? And it's really important uh, to activate that idea of a portfolio strategy in the context of innovation for corporates. Uh, it needs to be a spectrum. And, you know, at the core of it and starting at the very baseline is inculcating a culture of innovation in-house. Uh, this is often overlooked, honestly, and, uh, you know, oftentimes a nice to have, if you may. In my opinion, innovation comes in many flavors. It's from the small little step change ways of looking at the same problem in a different, uh, with a dif different vantage point to big game changing ideas for new businesses. Um, but at the core is the ability to be open to possibilities, right? So there needs to be this a big focus on sort of this idea of inculcating, uh, like I said, a culture of innovation. But beyond that, um, you know, there is this idea of harnessing the power of the startup ecosystem. Um, mm -hmm. You know, companies find it quite hard, I would say, for the internal innovation engine to kick in, um, you know, because oftentimes there is a lot of reliance, if you may, on the mothership. Um, and, you know, in order to be able to do things in-house or to be as uh, disruptive in-house, you do need the culture, but you also need the mechanism, if you may. And oftentimes, you know, that means ring fencing uh, mm -hmm. to have the freedom to explore the art of the possible, ensuring that there's a right balance of taking the best uh, from the parent company, knowledge, expertise, you know, warm leads into customers, introductions, those sorts of things, but always also being able to function with the sole goal of making business independently successful. And I think that's where the opportunity to um, work with startups and work with the ecosystem such as yours uh, is hugely valuable. You know, it can start with something, something as simple as piloting an idea or, um, you know, just uh, experimenting, but often can lead to uh, deeper partnerships, joint ventures, investments, working with accelerators, incubators, and such. Um, to me, you know, morphing into an innovation machine uh, can be challenging. And there's always this here and now uh, that is making the company successful today. Um, equally true is that many great ideas fail and corporates are just not set up to have these kinds of bets, right? right. Uh, but I would argue that this is really not a choice anymore. And the world is evolving faster, much faster than ever before. And if I were to think about the last 12 months and what that has taught us even, uh, is that the customer needs are changing very rapidly. So the ability to react to them in a nimble way uh, is about laying a thousand bets and making this a top of uh, mind you know, sponsorship agenda to work with startups and really try to get that sort of hustler mentality into the corporation uh, as a way as a way to turbocharge this engine, if you may. Exactly. Uh, it's so true, right? Especially now that you bring it up, the past 12 months have been a case study as to adapting to change, right? And we've seen that across the board around the world. And I think business is no exception. Um, you know, it, it goes without saying that our entire world has been changing faster than ever. Uh, let alone since the advent of COVID-19, the startup ecosystem has also been no exception to that. You know, we've seen our very fair share of dynamism and just a lot of need to adapt to the changes, to the changing landscapes, markets, 
business models as the world accepts a new normal. Um, from your point of view, Sonali, what has been the single most re remarkable trend that you have seen among corporates amidst the chaos of 2020? You know, when I when you originally asked me about this and I was thinking about this, you know, I think um, it's amazing how quickly we've uh, adapted, don't you think? Honestly, if I think of myself as very open to change and uh, yet, if you'd asked me a year back if the whole world would go work, work, work virtually and remotely, I would have said, right. I'm not sure I would have said that's my answer, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> necessity is the mother of invention, right? I would say crisis is the mother of innovation, if I may add to it. Yes. Uh, take, the, take the VC world. I mean, it's so much a contact sport, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yet today, you know, the ecosystem is so much more global. I have seen so many companies from around the world, in every corner of the world. You're certainly experience, experiencing the same with your most recent cohort. Um, without even setting a foot away from my study. Um, and we have really embraced this, right? Um, so the world has gotten closer in many ways, and yet there is a diametrically opposite reality that in a number of places, the world has become very inward-looking, local, and globalization is dead. You hear those sorts of things, right? right. Um, this is another one of those uh, very fascinating moments we're living in, a multi-vector world, right, where we have the opportunity to be hyper-local, at the same time, we have the opportunity to be hyper-global. And so I think that's the single most remarkable trend if I was to pick one, right? You know, how do you capture the opportunity and, you know, focus on whatever it is you're passionate about or you have expertise in to, you know, find where you fit in this hyper-local, hyper-global economy. I heard a word the other day, it was called glocal. I don't know how I feel about that. Uh, <laughs> Localization, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's McDonald's, use that, uh, sure. that word a lot, glocalizing. Glocalizing. Uh, right. Like, yeah, that's, that's it, that's it. You know, personally, I have been excited by the opportunity this presents. Uh, you know, take the example of ed tech, right? My, I have two kids, both of them are going to school. And uh, this area is of deep interest to me. You know, I've done some work in the after-school activity space and whatnot. I've been consulting a couple of companies. Uh, but can you imagine, like, what it is that we would leave behind for the next generation if there was just a better way to learn? Um, and the possibility to learn from the best around the world, anywhere in the world, right? And do that sitting at your home is absolutely mind-boggling to me. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you can get the best teacher in calligraphy for all you care from wherever in the world uh, to the best teacher in, you know, STEM to uh, STEAM to what have you, right? There's mm -hmm. that. And, you know, before it was about online learning was something that was coming. It's just accelerated completely, right? You leverage the best in class technology. You leverage the best in class collaboration tools, AR, VR. Uh, and think about the you know, I, re I recently came across a company that is using some VR technology, AR technology, sorry, augmented reality to support kids in the space of special needs. Um, oh, wow. I was just fascinated by that, right? So those are the kinds of things where I think that hyper-global can go to another level. On the other hand, this idea of connected locally, the basket of, you know, I have huge potential opportunity to disrupt, you know, this idea of I have 100,000 Facebook and other social media, gaming friends, my kids, all their friends are on games. Yeah. But somewhere we're losing the sense of the neighborhood. And I think it's coming back through various apps. Uh, that's very local, you know, eat local, eat what's in uh, what's in season. 
um, you know, don't leave a footprint on the world or leave a small footprint on the world. These are all things that, that are very, very local. You know, I heard of a company doing something like an Uber for children recently, like mothers going around and being able to support each other in uh, making some money, but also carpooling. You know, there, so there are a lot of local, there are lots of local ideas and lots of global ideas. I believe they will coexist. And I would say that's like the, to me, that's been the most fascinating trend as I think about opportunities in the world of business and startups. That's, you know, that's very interesting. And I, I've seen that as well. I think um, part of it, as you mentioned initially, was sort of a, a nice to have. But with the pandemic, we've all kind of just had to do it, right? Especially when it comes to the online learning uh, remote work, right? A year or two years ago, if you asked most executives if they would embrace remote work, most of them probably would have said, no, <laughs> you come to the office and you work here, but 2020 didn't give us that luxury. You all just had to adapt to that change. And, you know, you, you, you're menstruating some very interesting- days, You guys have been ahead of the curve at New Chip, right? Uh, you've always been remote and it's worked pretty beautifully for you guys. It, what's interesting and I'll tie this to the next question that I have about strategy. You know, initially our strategy has been online. That's been the strategy from the beginning, build an online remote accelerator program to go to the entrepreneurs where they are, right? You shouldn't have to force entrepreneurs to come to the key hubs, right? The next Elon Musk could come out of Montana or Tasmania, you know, (laughs) Mongolia. Uh, Are we going to expect them to come to Austin or San Francisco or Hong Kong or Singapore? Maybe, but that limits the opportunity and the reach that we can have. So from the beginning, the vision was, how do we make the biggest impact globally? It's by going to them. And, and that's been a big part of our strategy. And it, it, it's worked, right? Uh, I don't want to call it a blessing, but it's been a blessing in disguise that COVID-19 has made it to where a lot of entrepreneurs just need to rely on something that's online and remote. And that's helped us. So I, I wanted to ask, you know, on the same note, why does strategy matter, right? And not just for big corporations, but also startups and entrepreneurs. And I know this may seem like a silly question, but coming from one of the most prominent strategy consultancies in the world, why does it matter? I'm going to take the why does it matter to the world of entrepreneurship angle a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'll go back to basic definitions here, right? What I learned in business school a long, long time ago. Uh, which is strategy is about allocations of scarce resources. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is so true in the context of startups, right? Startups by nature are a culmination of the hustle from the most tenacious people out there. Those that bubble to the top beyond the brilliance of an idea to show promise is really because somebody was at it, you know, incessantly uh, for the longest time, not giving up, right? Uh, And every step of the way, there is a choice to be made. Uh, let's talk about uh, that in a bit of a construct. If we were to think about what is the objective of your business and how much or how or how much any action you take uh, or any any time you're spending will, will make on that objective, what progress will it make, right? It becomes a question about strategy, really, right? If you think about the concept of first principles and the definition. I often hear many entrepreneurs talk about, you know, it's a good good for my marketing, or I really think it's going to bring me customers, mm-hmm. or, or you know, I think it's going to motivate the talent. You know, there's a lot of that touchy feely side of it, right. and this is where I kind of feel like, you know, we need to move away and get into a little bit of an analytic analytical construct. I often often spend a lot of time peeling that 
that sentiment of your mate to actual numbers and say, okay, uh, so if you're making choices, um, uh, you know, choices that will help you grow, whatever your growth goals are, you know, help you, you know, help you make progress on those. What is the effort that you're going to put on this particular thing that you feel so passionate about, this choice that you're making? Uh, may it be like, I think, you know, there is this tiny little uh, growth market that I should tap now because somebody knocked on my door, sent me an email and said, we'd like to partner with you. You know, how much time and what is that going to have? What impact is it going to have uh, on your growth targets? And, you know, what will it take away from your individual energy uh, and uh, mind share uh, or emotional power or just your capacity to do anything else? What are you going to give up? Uh, right. Uh, and so the one thing that always is in short supply is uh, resources and time related to it. And so I would say no matter what the size of your organization, uh, strategy is about allocating that and making those choices and say making making choices which will often you know, put some things on hold uh, and knowing the direction of travel, right? Knowing how every action of yours is connecting to the question of your long-term goals and your long-term aspirations and the targets for your company. Um, yeah, that's my view on this on this particular topic. That that makes so much sense. And I wanted to tie that to, you know, you established the, the idea of a strategy, which makes perfect sense. Um, now, when we apply that, especially in the world of startups with the, the ultimate goal, right, is to build something that works, that makes money and that can scale. Um, scaling a business operation is always much easier said than done. Um, and achieving global success in today's competitive environment, well, necessitates achieving scale to, to actually just win in the market you're in. In your experience, what are some of the challenges that businesses face when scaling their operation. And you know, I recognize that you've worked potentially with some bigger enterprises, but how could you tie some of those to, to smaller companies like startups? I'm assuming this is beyond sort of like the product market fit phase. Uh, clearly you need a business to scale it and entrepreneurs by nature are hackers. So they are going to and can hack their way through uh, for a very long time, I would say. I'm amazed, you know, often how how long they can go before uh, feeling a need to say we need to put the right construct, the right approaches, the right frameworks, the right uh, processes and things like that in place. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, honestly, that's okay in my mind, right? I mean, it's okay as long as um, you're not making operational uh, problems a bandage solution to the point that it breaks. Mm -hmm. And it is a top priority it is top on your priority list, uh, you know, right next to your steadfast focus on growth and customer acquisition and all those sorts of things. Uh, it's not somewhere at the bottom of your pile. And so through the whole first phase of the journey, uh, you need to have a view towards what I call implementation, uh, which is not often in the wheelhouse for uh, entrepreneurs, right? That is not what they are passionate about. That's also not perhaps what they're, they've done before. Um, and so, you know, I'll, I'll break it down into three uh, two or three different things, if you may. So first on, on my list is prioritization. I have a very simple mantra, you know, everything is always a priority, but it does not have to be a priority at the same time, right? Um, do the mental exercise, take $100, split it up on your list of to-dos and see if everything has equal weighted, you have a problem. Uh, <laughs> that's how I put it. Um, so, so really solve for that first, right? You know, it can be faced, it can be Week by week, it can be daily, what have you. 
but really focusing on making sure that somewhere in your priority list and you don't keep shifting that is this idea that I need to identify when is that milestone that I'm going to have to start thinking about scale and what no regret moves I need to do now. Then the second is people attracting and you know hiring and retaining talent is an extremely time consuming and hard thing. Yet there are many people who want to work for startups, right? So I always test for skills, but hire for attitude and purpose, if you may. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a two-way street, uh, very much so today in the gig economy. I don't prescribe so much to the idea of employee-employer as much as I do to the idea of free agents. Uh, both the company and the individual need to feel like there is some value creation in it for them. It, you know, It's along the vector of learning. It's along the vector of the company goals, what have you. And while there exists, there, while this exists, right, there's huge amounts of inspiration and crazy amounts of creation and teaming and all that. That's where the fun is. Right. But as companies grow, they need to keep sight uh, of those early days of motivation on steroids, if you may, but also acknowledge and embrace the grow, grown-up version of this, which is a culture of fairness and learning and transparency. So I think I would put priority and then people. And then uh, beyond that, it's about processes, right? At some point, you're going to need to go beyond your Excel sheet and use a software and tool. So think about that milestone. Think about when you need to be prepared to do that. Spending too much time on it at a time when it doesn't matter to make everything scalable is not certainly not the right answer. But at the same time, there are some no regret moves that you can take now to make sure you're scale ready. And so I'd say, you know, Priority people and processes in that order. Keep that on top of your mind and also really think about uh, scale, not for scale's sake, but scale in the context of, you know, how is it impacting your milestones and your ability to do more with less, if you may. Absolutely. I mean, the three Ps, as you put it, uh, (laughs) prioritize people and then... The third one, processes. processes. We can't forget those, especially if you want to scale. I think it's it's so true, right? And we see that all the time at New Chip, where especially with the companies that are at the Series A level, they're they're already in a much more advanced growth stage, right? They're no longer playing ping pong, and you know they're meeting with big big enterprises. They're growing at a different rate, and they have to start uh, bringing very serious process to their corporation if they actually want to take it to that next level and be on the radar with, with the big players in their market. Um, it's often that make or break point, right? When you go from 10 to 30, 30 to 50, 50 to a hundred, a hundred to 500 employees, right? And you, you almost witnessed that firsthand as you were building out at Bain, you know, it was about 500 consultants, right? That you created the team. That's right. So it was Bain and they were all the, you know, benefits of having the great brand and all that. But honestly, like I said earlier, you know, when you're starting a different business, think of it as a separate business, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So, you know, take what makes sense, but also be willing to be independent. Yes. Yes. No, absolutely. That's so important. Um, I I wanted to shift the conversation a little bit more towards the, the mindset of startups and the, the startup ecosystem. Um, Obviously, you have a very fascinating perspective on this community. What do you think startups need now more than ever? And you can tie in 2020, uh, we're in 2021, but all the big challenges that have come up over the past months and years, what do you think startups need? So I'll take the immediate here and now, which I think is an age-old problem with startups, and then I'll go a little bit into sort of the the more futuristic uh, view on this particular question. 
uh, you know, being a startup is not easy. It's not for the faint-hearted. It's easier said than done. You know, I I feel privileged to have said I've been there, done that. Uh, but I know what it feels like, right? Uh, and certainly many ideas never see the light of the day, not because they're bad ideas or there is no real need or you've got the product market fit wrong or something like that. It's just because someone lost tenacity go to go that next day, right? It's an exhausting, lonely journey. Uh, and there's lots of advice out there. So uh, too much of it, I would say, on some level. So from funding to talent planning to customer acquisition, et cetera, et cetera, you know, the, the, there's lots of advice. Um, the needs have not changed. The sophistication level has, right? Uh, I've seen many a business uh, ideas lose momentum as they fail to inspire action from these various factions that they have, the customer, the employee, and the investor. Right. Uh, so any hands on deck support and services, things that can turbocharge outcomes in real tangible ways and help simplify the startup journey, if you may, is game, I would say. Um, take, for example, communications, right, as an example, the ability for a startup to convey the brilliance of the business idea is often and unfortunately, at times, what makes or breaks a deal. And this is, again, true for all those three factions, right? It is true for the customer, for the employee, uh, you know, as well as for the for the investor. Um, you know, cu customers, for example, they're being bombarded with so many options all the time, so many new tools, so many apps for you to download and what have you. So unless you're solving for a burning need and there's no other choice out there, you better have, you know, you better make a good impression quickly, right? So that's just an example of what startup needs today, startups need today, uh, and companies that can solve for that. Uh, what things we take for granted as corporates, right? I would say companies that can solve for that raw basic need in startups, I think, have real value to add to this ecosystem because it's really a shame that sometimes the best of ideas don't see the light of the day for these sorts of reasons. Um, and then I'll shift gears a little bit to this idea of, you know, what's it going to look like, right, in the world of startups and corporations in the next 10-ish years. I would say 10 is a long horizon in this world. I won't go to the 20 or 30. I'll say 5 to 10 or less than that. Um, you know, there's likely to be many, many more experiments. Let's be honest, right? Both sides need each other is how I feel uh, about this topic, right? It's only a matter of timing and the alignment of uh, needs or incentives and the recognition of value, if you may. So there'll always be a lot of experimentation and a lot of learning. But I feel like we, I, I honestly feel like we're nearing an inception point, a point of no return as to the, this will become the new norm, if you may, a new way of doing business, a new way of uncovering the next product, a new way of high, you know finding those artisan brands, uh, which will be uh, a fresh um, offering to your customer. So, you know, the pace will multiply exponentially. And I think we're very close or we're almost, we probably are already at that inception point because many companies, you know, big corporations are recognizing this today and are willing to, uh, you know, willing to pivot to that mindset and actually move uh, a huge, very successful engine in a different direction because they are seeing uh, their industry and its spaces being, being, being disrupted on an everyday basis, right? There's a lot of noise out there. Yes, no, definitely. And I think it's, again, a very fascinating perspective that you bring, having uh, a big view into how the corporates are thinking, but also the startups. Um, and I agree, I think <laughs> 10 years is an eternity in the world of startups. So that's typically, you know, the investment cycle for a VC uh, on the upper end. In, in your experience, and I want to tie this a little bit more to sort of how the corporation and the startups 
they form a dynamic, right? They have to work together. Uh, a lot of the startups that we see right now that are young, right? Maybe relatively unknown. They may be irrelevant to the big competitors, but who's to say that in three, five, seven, let alone 10 years, they're going to be the, the titans, right? Of these new markets and industries. What are the key skills that you think CEOs, founders, leaders in startups need in order to rise and succeed, not just as any company, but highly reputable and respected global leaders, especially in today's you know, super competitive and fast evolving world? Um, there is a, a, a full day session we can do on this topic, uh, but I'll give you a very quick and simple answer. Uh, you know, I've said many times through this whole conversation that I honestly believe that, you know, it's it's customer first, but it's customer and people first. It's two in a box, as I call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the ability to stay nimble and move fast, and perhaps the most importantly, the ability to stay focused in a world of information overload, um, the ability to capture the signal from the noise. Perhaps those are the two big things, right? Always recognizing that you can, it's you know, you can't really or cannot really be functioning in a in a one vector world where there's a customer and that's the end all be all. You have to think of the talent side, and right. the second one is being able to kind of tease out. There's so much innovation. There's so many ideas out there. You know, how do you how do you tease out the signal from the noise, as we say at the BIE, is uh, perhaps the two things that you need to uh, you need to hone in on think about what success looks like in the fast evolving world. Yeah. And, and I would push on the flip of that. What do you think right now is the most common mistake that entrepreneurs are, are making? I'll take that question a little bit differently if you don't mind. Uh, I, um, I, I, I hate to be, you know, talking about here are the 10 common mistakes and things like that. All of us are here to make mistakes. If you're not making mistakes, you're probably doing something wrong. Exactly. Uh, so this may sound cliche, but uh, there's always a first time to do things, right? And the strangest thing is that most entrepreneurs are expected to know their business when most of the things they do, they're doing it for the first time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's hats off to the entrepreneurs who figure things out, right? Uh, so I don't have a very long or short list, if you may, on the common mistakes, uh, but I do have a few observations. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 I um, kind of capture it in what I call the fight, flight, or freeze state of mind of running a business. Uh, this is usually used in the context of uh, human behavior, uh, but I like to use it just as a way to remind myself and other people who are listening to this. You know, there is there, there is three modes of your of your existence, of your being, or your way of thinking and working and functioning that you should watch out for. Uh, one is what I call fight, which is not recognizing that there is a mistake and living in a hubris of this is going to work because it's the best idea in the world and it's just a matter of time, uh, right? The, uh, the other is what I call the, the flight, which is not analyzing. So you made a mistake, you kind of recognize it, you're feeling you know, terrible about it, um, but not analyzing the learnings. And so sort of saying, okay, it's not gonna happen again, right? Or this was a one-off or you know, shoving it under the file and expecting it to be an anomaly. And then the last one is freeze, which is analysis paralysis. You get into a mode of this is, you know, again, I don't know if you want to put this on video, but the ocean moment, as we have called it sometimes, which uh-huh. is you're analyzing nonstop. And so you cannot get out of the indecision uh, challenges, right? So if you kind of think about 
it's almost like I put you in a little corner between a rock and a hard place and say, you can't fight, you can't flight, you can't freeze. So where do you go from here, Sonali? I think it's just recognizing that every situation, it will be, you know, it, it, you, you just have to identify what is happening and trying to sort of maneuver based on what's happening. If you're getting into a mode of not making a move when all the answers are not there, that's not the right answer either. Um, you know, so really recognizing when you need to pivot, but not pivoting too quickly. It's an art. Right. Right. No, I, you know, I, as you were describing that, I was just imagining that cycle, the iteration cycle that you know, a lot of startups embrace, right? Lean startups, especially where the, the goal is to fail fast, right? If you're going to try it, you're just going to like fail, break it. And then, but as you said, make sure that you're learning from it, right? There's no point in just discarding the facts. There's no point in not wanting to learn about it, maybe because of ego, right? And again, I think Tying this to what you initially said, uh, a lot of entrepreneurs oftentimes don't have a clue as to what they're doing, but they have a dream. They have a vision. Uh, I think having the openness and the willingness to learn from those mistakes and making mistakes is important, right? Because as you said, if you're not making mistakes, you're probably not doing something worthwhile, meaningful, or something that's going to actually change the game for your business over the long run. Um, But I do think, especially the paralysis side, right? It's... It's so true. And I've seen so many founders oftentimes just get lost in the weeds, right? Of a ton of data, trying to analyze things that keeps them immobile, right? From actually taking action and and making mistakes and failing, right? So that they can say, that didn't work. We're going to move on to the next, next part of the strategy. So that makes perfect sense. You know, just, just go out there and just keep trying. Uh, this has obviously been a lot of really good insight, Sonali. The last question that I have, um, what actionable advice would you give to entrepreneurs who genuinely want to build companies that make an impact in this world, that change the world for a very long time? I'll keep it very short. I'd say stay curious and run a marathon, not a sprint. I love that. I love that. And and I agree. I think um, in starting a company, creating something out of nothing, you're not sprinting, right? You are running a marathon. You're in it for the long run. Most VCs are anyway. They're not here to get in, get out. They're here to be your partners for, for many, many years. So that's a very good reminder for everybody in the audience who's thinking that this startup thing that you're doing is a sprint. It's not. It's a marathon. So you got <laughs> to stick it out for the long run. Uh, Sonali, thank you so much for taking the time out of your super busy schedule to be here with us today. Really appreciated learning so much about your experiences, your perspective and your insight. And uh, I hope that we can see you here again soon in the future. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of New Chip Accelerate. If you are interested in learning more about how New Chip enables startup founders to build their business, meet other CEOs and raise their rounds, all while retaining 100% ownership of their companies, check us out at newchip.com. This interview was the keynote for New Chip's January Online Demo Week. Online Demo Week is streaming from January 25th through 29th, 2021. To access the week-long stream, simply RSVP to the event on the New Chip Online Demo Week January 2021 Eventbrite page. If you missed the event, you can access all of its panels and keynotes on our YouTube channel. We'll see you next time with another episode of New Chip Accelerate.